Hello and welcome to the ME Show. My name's Gary Burgess. I was diagnosed with ME last year. And with support from the ME Association, I'm hoping this series will help improve awareness and understanding of this illness. Thank you so much for another huge response to the podcast. Last time I spoke to the MP Carol Monaghan about her Westminster debate about the discredited PACE trial and her efforts to table an early day motion to rally cross-party support among MPs to push ME up the political priority list. Well, all your kind words are appreciated, but above all, to read messages from people who say they've lobbied their own MPs as a result of hearing the show really has made my week. Thank you so much. I also heard from a few people who said they appreciated the interview being slightly shorter than the others in this series. Uh, I hadn't put any exact time limit on the interviews I've done. I'm just keeping them as long as they feel right, really. So I hope the one in this episode passes that test as well. This week on the ME show, we focus on children with ME. An estimated 25,000 children in the UK have the illness, and that's believed to be a very conservative estimate. I've been speaking to Jane Colby from Times Trust, which exists to support children with ME, as well as their parents and guardians. You'll hear about their helpline, but also something that truly shocked me, that hundreds and I mean hundreds of parents, have been referred to social services suspected of harming their children because experts didn't believe their children were ill. It is absolutely traumatic, and I don't believe parents really quite ever recover their trust in doctors after this, for a start. Um, They're afraid. Jane, welcome to the ME Show. Thank you so much for joining us. For for people who don't know, you head up a charity called Times Trust. I guess, first of all, why is it called Times Trust and, and what's it for? Well, the name was invented by two young girls in their teens who had ME themselves and were very lonely. And they wanted to produce a little magazine for other children. And they had about 200 people on the list. Uh, and they found them, they thought of this name. It was meant to be a pun on the Times newspaper, Times. But it was T-Y-M-E-S to stand for the young ME sufferer. Uh, well, we've never changed that uh, because we think if that's what the children invented, let's have it. You know, so Times Trust is what it is. The Young ME Sufferers Trust, it became a trust in the year 2000. They just started it up as a little magazine and the demand got so big, it was formalised into a charity. Uh, we're the only national ME charity in the UK for, you know, dedicated to children, should I say. I think it's wonderful the origins lie in the very people that you are now there to help. Explain your involvement, how you got involved with the Trust. That was an accident. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because um, in 1985, I was a head teacher and a dreadful virus that turned out to be related to poliomyelitis swept through the school and the area and everything and a number of people got ill I got ill and never got well and it really rapidly turned into what my microbiologist who was fortunately pretty much the foremost specialist at the time she diagnosed it as ME within about six weeks I think but I was bedridden for years uh, and in a wheelchair in a terrible state 
I lost a lot of my vocabulary. I couldn't think straight. It was just the pain was incredible. And it went on and on. And it became obvious to me that every time I tried to get back to my job, I relapsed and it wasn't going to work. So I thought, well, I'll have to come out. And just at the time that I left uh, being a head teacher, my microbiologist said to me, look, there are a lot of children getting this. Please, will you help me to get information out to the schools and find out what's going on in the schools? Uh, and really, what is the pattern of ME in schools? And she roped me in, didn't she? <laughs> <laughs> and I got sort of stuck after that. And here we are all these years later with a, a thriving trust, a thi thriving charity. And as you mentioned, the, the only charity dedicated to looking at this illness through the eyes of children and for children. Why do you think that need is needed? There is a specific um, problem from the, for children's point of view. They, they are supposed by law to be educated. And one of the things we got the Queen's Award for was actually look, uh, to help to you know, support the type of education, promoting uh, the kind of education that would help these children. Because if you keep forcing them back into school, well, I say it's like picking a scab off a wound. You know, a wound will not heal if you mm. keep picking the scabs off. And all these children, poor things, I mean, you know, it really is terrible. Some of them are so severely ill. And and the state is rather obsessed at the moment with just pushing them back into school as soon as they think they might be able to manage it instead of coping with it, you know, the fact that they have got here a child basically quite seriously disabled uh, intellectually as well as physically and you have to provide specially for their education and they have to be allowed to be educated at home now that makes children a very special group how do you find the children and indeed how do the children find you because it, it, it sounds to me that once you find each other good things can happen oh well, that's lovely to say uh, thank you um it's a word of mouth a lot of the time, social media, and we, of course, work with uh, other charities as well who will say, oh, if it's a child, you best go to Times Trust. Um, and so uh, I'm a, a member of uh, a number of different groups, including Forward ME, you know, the Countess of Mars group, and they just get to hear about us, really. A lot of it is word of mouth. And when someone does find you, whichever way round that happens, what do you actually do at that point? Well, it's interesting because of the fact that some people just register straight away. They go and read all the free stuff on our website and immediately register to be uh, to receive things through the post and so on. Other people find us because they need to talk to our advice line. And I have to praise our advice line team to the skies. It's a small, dedicated group. We're all volunteers. Nobody is paid. Everyone's pro bono, but they're very professional. And we won't have anybody on our advice line who hasn't either had ME themselves and is you know, subsequently quite a lot recovered, but at the moment it's mostly parents who's got children with ME as well. They understand exactly what the caller is going through. Uh, so they're pushing it an open door when they phone our advice line. And very often people come to us through wanting particular advice for education. It must be a very lonely, bewildering and scary time for a child, equally for a for a parent or guardian. And, you know, I, I, I'm learning more and more about this illness as the months go by. But some of the stories I see of, of children who who are struck with this, 
it is just a hell of an existence for them. It is. Um, uh, as you say, I mean, simply having to accept the fact that you are so ill and so much in pain, but the thought of not being believed, and this is half the trouble, isn't it? Society and sometimes doctors and schools find it almost impossible to grasp how seriously ill the children can get if they push them too far. Um, and so, well, for example, uh, what is very interesting is that we actually found, as uh, there was some research that we part-funded uh, back in 2010, and it showed for the first time that there's all kinds of dreadful things going on in these children's bodies. I mean, uh, they have increased white blood cell apoptosis, which is cell death. Um, they have... Uh, oxidative distress. And the point about it is that these data, they're all consistent with a reactivating or persistent viral infection. Now, people aren't behaving as if they've got a viral infection that is a serious one and that is disabling them. They're behaving as if they've got some kind of short-term thing and can be expected somehow to get back to normal. So the families are facing discrimination against their educational rights and against really their rights as human beings i mean they're treated with treatment that makes them worse it is appalling the thing that i've only just realized listening to you now is many of these interviews and much of my thought process has been about me the patient and the health service but actually as well as the health service in your work you're also having to convince and guide education services as well well yes and of course because of the fact that i was a head teacher it's not as if i don't understand that it's a difficult thing to provide for these children uh, the advice line team is always completely up to date with what the latest uh, legal situation is and what they're entitled to uh, my role is more to make people aware uh, that they have to provide uh, special arrangements for the children for examinations they have to be allowed to be educated at home i find that virtual education has been brilliant because while they're going through the long recovery process and we none of us know how much better we're going to get they're able to interact virtually with tutors and other students and gain qualifications from their home in small bite-sized chunks as and when they can manage it, sometimes watching a lesson live, sometimes watching it in recorded format. And they can actually experience success even while they're very ill. Every time. So this is why we have to make it really, I would say, a standard thing to offer these children with ME straight away so that they don't keep getting worse and worse being put back into school. When they get there, they can't think straight anyway, because it's been found that the oxygen level in the brain falls when you make an effort or when you make a, a physical or intellectual effort. And so they can't think straight once they've even managed to get there. And they're always having to be sent home, not well, or they can manage a day or so. And then they're at home and the parent tells the school that they're ill. And the school finds it hard to believe because while they were in school, they looked reasonably all right. But all the little energy they've managed to manufacture all drains away and then they're ill again. <laughs> the merry-go-round of life with Emmy. I recognise it so much. The number of times people say to me, oh, you look so well. And then an hour later, I might be stuck in bed for the rest of the day or the weekend. When it comes to changing the entitlement and the expectation of children and their education, I, I'm, I'm guessing this really 
won't change at teacher level or head teacher level. This has to be at policy level. So we're, we're talking government level, aren't we? Well, we are. And uh, we do work with, uh, particularly our advice line team director has worked with the Department for Education. I have myself, one of the paediatricians that we work with, he's adamant that half the problem is coming from the medical profession because they are influencing these policies and they are influencing what happens to the children in school. Now, they're not trained educationists, but nevertheless, uh, what they say, oh, yes, get the child back into school. It's almost like a version of graded exercise therapy, which, as we all know, isn't going to work on somebody who's got classic ME at all. It may be all right on people who've got other types of fatiguing illness, but not classic ME. And if they do this with children, trying to force them into school, it's actually a sort of graded activity or graded exercise. You know, now you can do one day, now you can do two days, now you can do three days. Very familiar, isn't it? (laughs) So it's coming from the medical profession, really, as well as the education profession. It's a double discrimination, if you like. And although NICE has had a pretty bad rap, uh, people don't seem to realise that um, there is a lot of confusion between the term education and school. And NICE explains, because we advise them to do that initially, they explain that you should try to help the children keep involved in education. But they don't say school, but everybody has taken it to mean school. It doesn't mean school. It just means some form of being able to be involved in education if possible and sometimes they're far too ill to do even that oh i see so people see those guidelines and and they they assume education means school so they jump to that conclusion that that means the official advice is push that child to school get them back doing more and more is is there an opportunity right now with nice reviewing the guidelines around the treatment of me for you to influence that language so it's so it's less ambiguous well, it's a funny thing. I mean, I, w- I certainly think that um, it would be a good thing to make it less ambiguous, but it it simply doesn't say education rather than school, which is all you would need it to say at the moment. It just says try and help keep involved in education and that it needs to explain specifically that does not necessarily mean in school because education is not anything to do with where you're doing it. It's to do with what you're doing. In other words, it doesn't matter if you've got that bum on that seat and tick the attendance box, because if you want to go to university, the university doesn't say, oh, yes, right, let's see your attendance record. I can let you come into the university if you've got a good attendance record. They say, what's your exam results? And so it doesn't, it's not relevant where you're being educated. What is relevant is whether you're giving the children an education. And that is a fundamental human right for a child. It is. And it's a it's a legal right as well. Uh, Many of these children, they do have a protected characteristic underneath the uh, equality law as well. Um, So the schools are very often contravening it. But I think they're in a difficult position, schools anyway, because of what the doctors are saying to them. And the doctors don't know um, really entirely what the best thing to do with education is. They have to listen to people like ourselves who, who are experienced in this area. And there are firms one that we work with who who are very good at uh, delivering this virtual education and it works and of course the problem is with the health problem it does help to protect their health it does help them to recover quite well Uh, those who would never have been able to get back to school 
can get somewhere educationally. And those who are on the borderline, they may be able to get back in a couple of years or something into school. You'll help them do it much better if you protect their health during that period instead of keep forcing them to come back in. A lot of parents just take their children out of school because of this reason. And then they just fall off the radar. You you mentioned uh, you work with a company that's good at this. Uh, who who pays for this? If if I, if I'm a parent with a child in this situation, I know I want my child to have an education, but my child cannot be at school. Is is there an entitlement to a home education? It's a very complicated area, and that's what our advice line is good at, and also the firm itself is good at. But in many cases, the education authority will pay, um, or the state will pay in some form or another. They've set up, as you know, for different age groups, different funding bodies, but it can be funded. It doesn't have to be funded by the parents, although some parents in a position to pay have actually done that. Um, And I can understand why, because, you know, if I had a child who I know what it's like, how bad you can be with this. And you see this child, this poor child, trying to get well when actually they're being forced to do things that are actually, as I say, like picking the scabs off a wound and it won't do. And yes, you can get funding for it, is the truth of it. We've spoken a lot about education. Let, let's talk a, about the, the the medical side of things now. Um, in in this podcast series, I, I've spoken to to medical experts and, and 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 got an increased understanding of where we're at in terms of of treating and looking after children with ME. Are there are there specific things that you're hoping will happen, and and where are things at right now when it comes to helping children with ME? In some ways, of course, it isn't uh, medically, it's not different, is it? Um, But you do find that far more uh, young people in their teens get this illness um, than the really young ones. Um, It's thought to be partly hormonal, partly to do with, you know, puberty and making the, but, and it's also thought to be to do with immune system thinking by the time it's got to puberty that it's met everything it's going to meet and then it will meet something different just when it's come out of learning mode is how my microbiologist used to explain it and gone into a sort of maintenance mode and it's not reacted for whatever reason it's not reacted in such a way to this viral onslaught to be able to throw it off properly so it becomes a long-term condition um, and you will find very often there's a peak in the teens but there's another peak in the 40s the two peaks um, in terms of when you have find most people uh, will have a a flare-up and sometimes I I believe it's a flare-up in their 40s from what they had in their teens in the first place and sort of got over it now children are actually pretty resilient if you let them be and if you care for them we've forgotten compassion I mean convalescence That is the key word we should be looking at here with children, convalescence. The medical profession and the medical services and the medical support, it appears to me, is is variable. It's it's a postcode lottery, as we've heard described, I'm sure, many times over the years. Are there any common threads you find when you're speaking to children and their parents and guardians in terms of the, the frustrations they face when they're trying to get the right treatment? Well, there isn't a right treatment. You see, this is the difficulty. There's this myth out there that there's some wonderful treatment that will make them better. And there is not. Mm. Uh, There may be certain symptomatic reliefs uh, that 
may or may not help. And it all depends, doesn't it, on whether you're actually talking chronic fatigue, which is a massive umbrella term, and you will find different pathologies within it, or whether you're talking chronic fatigue syndrome, which has got so many definitions, some of which are so loose, again, you will get subgroups within it, or whether you're talking about the much smaller group of people who have got very potentially severe um, and potentially chronic long-lasting uh, disease of ME, which is caught up underneath all this. So for that, there isn't a treatment other than initially resting and then letting your body do the work for you. And the more you rush around trying to find a cure, uh, the more you distract your poor body from actually trying to just heal you. Uh, I mean, you, you look at what children actually say. I mean, they say, it's a lovely quote I've got here, actually. You're meant to understand my illness, but all you do is push, push, push. Well, that isn't going to do anybody any good. It's like trying to force rhubarb. I mean, children aren't rhubarb. You can't force recovery. What an awful thing for a child to have to have said. Isn't that awful? Yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely terrible. And they say things like, I worry about what you're going to tell us to do next. Everything we do isn't good enough. And then they'll get banned from sleeping. Now, doctors I've worked with, uh, there was one doctor who stated that the patients who seem to do best are those who take naps during the day, often because they can't sleep terribly well at night and they need to make up again. I go back to my, my, my microbiologist, Dr. Dowsett, and she used to say, uh, you should live within the rhythm of the brain as it works to heal itself. That was what she said. In other words, if you get sleepy, your brain is saying, go to sleep. It's not actually saying get someone to shake you awake and tell you you can't sleep until tonight. <laughs> uh, and, and it doesn't help because the brain is healing while it's sleeping. So you're waking it up. We've spoken about children. We've spoken about education. We've spoken about the medical side. When it comes to parents approaching Times Trust, I imagine they're reaching you in, in various states, whether it's bewilderment or upset or sheer exasperation. In, in what way are you able to support parents through this? Well, it's interesting, partly because, of course, as I say, the people on the advice line are parents anyway. And um, most of them, uh, and there's a very small group at the moment, but they're very, very good and very sympathetic and very kind. And they've heard it all. They've heard people crying on the other end. Um, they've heard people who have been told all kinds of nonsense. But we hear this. We could write the script over and over and over again, you know, this business of forcing them to do this and forcing them to do that and simply not understanding how ill they are uh, and the parents trying to, they are in between their child who they're trying to protect like any mother animal or father animal will protect their young. Their mothers will protect their young. You go into a field where there's a cow and calves and you're in trouble, aren't you? Because the, the, the mother will turn on you. Yeah. Well, the and then the professionals are surprised when they try to force the children to do things that are making them worse. And the parents say, no, we're not doing it and try to protect them. <laughs> well, that's what they're supposed to do, you know. And I really cannot see how the professionals are so surprised. And they say, well, the parents don't want it, you know. Well, of course they don't want it. They're protecting their children. It's their role. You've been looking at this, experiencing this, living this for, for years, for decades. Have you have you seen things improve in any measurable sense over those years? Well, I was seeing things improve, I thought, because we were getting through educationally, doing a number of courses and things. Uh, it seemed to take a, 
a bad turn some years ago with this uh, new medical push. It's often down to particular people pushing particular dogmas. But whatever has actually uh, caused this, uh, I think it's got worse again. Um, it's partly officialdom. Uh, and the pressures on parents seem to have got worse and worse to the extent now where they're being accused. And it's always happened a bit, but I think it's happening more. They're actually being accused of harming their own children or, you know, uh, and being investigated by social services um, for, for, because nobody can believe that the children could be that ill for that long. There must be a sinister reason for it. Now, I think this has gone on always, but it's now seems to have really escalated um, and it's pretty bad when you try to protect your child and then you're accused of actually damaging your child and it seems to be a pattern unfortunately we often get these calls um, and we can see the red flags going up oh they said they would have a case conference or they had this meeting without telling us or they turned up on the doorstep without announcing and you know where it's going suspicion 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 now, isn't that peculiar when you look at the name chronic fatigue syndrome? It's a stupid name anyway, because Emmy is not fatigue. So chronic fatigue syndrome, even if you're going to use that name, however bad it might be, people have forgotten the word chronic means long lasting. So, yes, they're going around calling it chronic fatigue syndrome. And then they're saying, well, how can the child be ill for so long? It must be something else. You know, well, why are you using the word chronic if you don't believe it can last a very long time? The whole thing is a nonsense. Jane, can I just get this absolutely right for clarity? You're saying not one in a blue moon, but you are seeing cases in the plural of parents being referred to social services over fears that they are harming their own child because the child remains unwell with a chronic condition. Yes. And in 2014, I had a peer-reviewed article in a journal, uh, an academic journal, which was called False, my piece was called False Allegations of Child Abuse in Cases of Childhood Myalgic Encephalomyelitis, ME. Now, at that time when I wrote that, um, I wrote it because of what was going on. At that time, Times Trust had advised about 121 families facing that kind of suspicion. It's well over 200 now. That was in 2014. So we're now 2018. It is well over 200 cases that we've seen now. It's stunning, isn't it? You can't believe it in, in this day and age. I, I don't do gobsmacked very often. It takes a lot to shock me. I am absolutely gobsmacked by that. Is is there yeah. is there any pattern to this? You know, if if you put these on a map, is this is this particular parts of the country where this happens? Is it is it just hit and miss? It could be anywhere. Have you have you been able to learn anything from this? Well, I think where you've got dogma spreading out from any centre, you've got dogma spreading out from. You, you will get a sort of centre of it, but in practice, it's all over the place simply because of the fact that. The dogma spreads and is spread by those who believe it. And they cannot accept their treatment isn't working for children with a classic ME. So they either get taken off the uh, the list, oh, I can't help you anymore, or alternatively, it can't be my treatment that's wrong, therefore it must be the parent's fault. They can't accept the fact that there is no proper treatment for classic ME. And what complicates it is that if they're seeing a lot of children who actually don't have classic ME at all, it might well be that what they're doing, suggesting that they get back into school or do this, that and the other, 
you know, a bit of graded exercise, it might be all right for them because they don't have classic ME. Well, I wrote with somebody else helping, you know, we wrote a, a leaflet for GPs, basically explaining this whole business about ME and CFS and things uh, and saying that if you have a patient who falls into a certain subcategory underneath chronic fatigue syndrome, they will be made worse. These are the patients who will be made worse by being made to exercise or with children being made to get into school and do other sorts of activity. That's the group that will be made worse. But if you have a big wide group and you're doing research or you want to show that your treatment is working, you can do with some of the people because they don't have classic ME, but the ones who do, you are really not doing any good at all to. And they're the ones who will possibly get worse and worse. We have children who've had to be tube fed for long periods of time. It can be extremely serious. And then the next thing is the parent gets accused. And it is a pattern. Yes, it is a pattern, but it isn't necessarily just in one part of the country. How do parents get through the other side of that? That's that's, you know, life's bad enough. A a, a child suffering, a a parent perhaps struggling with their child suffering, because that is heartbreaking to then find yourself accused. How, How do you get out of that? First of all, they can't believe it's happening, especially if they're a professional themselves, because we've obviously had nurses, people who are parents who are nurses and cannot believe what the NHS is doing to them. You've got parents who are educationalists and so on, cannot believe what the education system is suspecting them of, because they and they first of all, they completely change their view of what state provision is for children, whether it be health or education. And then, of course, they realise that they're terrified uh, with this juggernaut rolling over them. And it can roll over you pretty quickly. You have to get the right advice. You have to get uh, legal advice. And we uh, we are pretty good at giving the advice as to what to do. But parents have to do it for themselves. You know, we can't do it for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do give uh, advice as to it's a good idea if you do this, this, this kind of thing. And if they do come to us, they will get that advice. And we have people who can assist and talk to the parents and help them through it. But it is absolutely traumatic. And I don't believe parents really quite ever recover their trust in doctors after this, for a start. Um, They're afraid then to go in to see the doctor. And there was one parent that I knew who was suspected of this. uh, And it was one of these awful cases that goes on and on and on. In the end, she became ill and was afraid to go to the doctor herself because of what she'd experienced with the child. And it turned out she had cancer and she died. Uh, And this is the kind of damage that it can do if if you destroy people's trust completely in in the medical profession by what you're doing to the child. I I don't know what to say to that. I I just hope a time comes when when something good comes of of all of this horror. Can you be optimistic looking forward with the work you're doing, the campaigning, the lobbying that you may be doing, the research you're involved with? Can you remain positive? Well, you have to look long term. I mean, when you think it was (laughs) when Dr. Dowsett asked me to do this research with her, which was 1991. I mean, that's going back, isn't it? And I've been in this area one way or another ever since then. And you have to take the long view uh, and you have to assume that science will sort it out in the end. And you're doing a bit of a holding operation, if you like, as well as educating. And I think science will sort it out in the end. So, you know what? 
the advice line. It's a funny thing. I watched a film once and there was a guy playing a lawyer and um, he was talking about his work and he said, oh, I'm saving the world one case at a time. And I thought, gosh, that's just like our advice line, <laughs> saving the world one family at a time. So a lot of it is simply helping the individual family through it. But you're right, there is campaigning and there is making sure that people understand, you know, that there really is information out there to be had and that they need it. The point about the work that Dr. Dowsett asked me to do with her way back, it took us oh, five, six years. It was published in 1997. It was the biggest study of ME that had ever been done. And we studied a school role of 333,000 pupils in widely spaced education authorities and 27,000 staff. And we've, ME was the biggest cause of long-term sickness absence. A lot of people say long-term absence, but not. Long-term sickness absence from school. It was the biggest cause. And this is a huge school role to be looking at. And it was in staff as well as children. It wasn't just children mm. who couldn't get, you know. So that is a established fact. And other doctors and people since have found They've done smaller studies along the same lines and found the same thing. It's so disabling. And so I think simply getting across the fact of how disabling this is, and you must alter the child's lifestyle in order to give them a chance to recover. It's a huge job, but that is a job in itself. And as I say, it's helping individual families through it as well. And it's political campaigning, of course it is. Your, your passion, your knowledge absolutely shines through in everything you say, Jane, as does clearly your love of the volunteers on your helpline. Uh, we've not even mentioned the phone number yet. I imagine there'll be people listening to this right now who are wanting to make contact with the Times Trust. How, how do they go about that? Well, they can leave a voicemail on 0845 the reason why it's a voicemail all the time is because of the fact that if people sit on the advice line, just a few volunteers, and nobody phones at that particular time, and then they find they have to make callbacks as well, uh, we found it was much more efficient if people could actually explain why they phoned, a little bit about when it would be help, you know, helpful for us to phone them, because we try to fit in with their times. So when they'll be available to take a call, what it is they're particularly trying to find the answer to, we can make sure to get all that information together and phone them back with it. And when you've got volunteers, it, it really works. A very, It's a very good use of their time. And the advice line team director... She directs all this, so she makes sure that the the you know that uh, the person is given the call and explains who to phone back, and they're waiting for the call, and it works very well. But they can also send in a contact us form on our website, which is www.timestrust.org, t y m e s trust.org for the Young and Me Sufferers Trust. There's a contact us form there as well so they can do that and uh, and it will be acted on we will get back to them it sounds like an incredibly valuable service jane uh, please pass on my best to, to to the rest of the team for the work they do uh, as i've said before um I, I hope a day comes when you don't need to exist but my word thank god you exist right now uh, and jane thank you so much for joining me on the me show today well that's all right and uh Oh, lots of love to everybody out there. <laughs> it was great to speak to Jane, 
and to find out about the work of the Trust. If you miss that helpline number, it's 0845 003 9002. And as with all the things we talk about on the podcast, you'll find it in the show notes at meassociation.org.uk slash podcast. That's meassociation.org.uk slash podcast. And that's also the address to share with anybody else you think might like to hear the ME show. You'll also find us on most podcast platforms, as well as in iTunes, where you can also rate and review us to help boost our visibility. Next week on the ME show, something different. I meet the couple who've linked up people with Emmy from around the world to create an album of music and poetry. Michelle and Nigel's Music for Emmy project is truly inspirational. It's proved a powerful outlet for the people they've featured and has resulted in something rather beautiful. We'll hear from Michelle and Nigel, plus some of that music and poetry on the next episode. But for now, this is the Emmy show. I'm Gary Burgess, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.